Voice Talks presented by Google Assistant is happening each month. You'll hear from industry experts, voice-first influencers, and platform creators each month for a deep dive into our rapidly evolving voice industry. Plus, get your questions answered and a chance to win prizes. Hosted by Sophia Altuna, one of Google Assistant's top industry experts and a leader on the Global Product Partnerships team, we encourage you to register for this free event and join us at voicesummit.ai slash talks. That's voicesummit.ai slash talks. We can't wait to see you there. Nir Isle is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He founded two tech companies, is an active investor in companies such as Eventbrite, Anchor, Kahoot, and more, and his writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. You'll hear where his interest in psychology started from, how to get people hooked on your product in an ethical way, what he thinks voice technology needs in order to get more people hooked to its skills, why we tend to get distracted during our day, and how to cultivate a life where we get more done and feel less guilt. Hello and welcome to the Inside Voice podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Roberts, and we are here with another video edition. Inside Voice is part of Voice. You can learn more about Voice at voicesummit.ai. And I am so excited today. We have Near Isle. We have been talking for a few months trying to get you on the show. I'm so excited you are here all the way from Singapore talking to us today. And for those that don't know, Nir is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and his new book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He's founded two tech companies, is an active investor in companies such as Eventbrite, Anchor, Kahoot, and more. And his writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. Welcome, Nir. Thank you for being here. Thanks. It's so good to be here, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I want to start with you just personally because you've done so many things. Where did your interest in psychology and technology really begin for you? Well, I'll take the first part. I'll take the psychology portion. So for me, I think, you know, I have to trace it back all the way to my adolescence, believe it or not, that I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life. And uh, I was always a overweight, actually an obese kid. I remember my mom took me to the doctor and he had this chart and it, it said, okay, here's normal weight here's overweight and here's you. You're like well into the obese category. And uh, I remember even from a, an early age, you know, I remember in my teen years that food seemed to have this power over me that I felt like it controlled me. And I was really fascinated by that. And particularly, I was fascinated by the marketing and how you know products were designed, uh, like how they designed the the uh, cereal boxes to look down. You know, all the characters look down so the kids it'll catch kids' eyes. So I was always fascinated by that kind of stuff. And to some extent, I blamed it for my obesity. But over time, what I discovered that that was fruitless. That blaming the food companies didn't serve me. That what served me was learning really why I was overeating. And I wish I could tell you I was overeating because McDonald's made delicious hamburgers. But really, I was eating for the same reason that the vast majority of people who are overweight are overweight. It's because we eat our feelings, right? That's why I was overeating. In my case, I was overeating because I was sad. I was overeating because I felt lonely. I was overeating because I was mad at myself and felt guilty and shameful because I had overeaten. And so it wasn't until I broke that cycle and understood the real reasons why I was doing things against my best interests that I overcame this problem. I still have to watch it. You know, I have a tendency definitely to overeat, especially emotionally. But it wasn't until I faced that fact and stopped blaming things outside of myself that I finally got control over this. And so I think it was that same fascination 
when I discovered this new tendency to overconsume not food, but information. That when we got these amazing devices, I became fascinated with how good they are at changing our behaviors. And so my first instinct was, wow, we could use this for an amazing power for good. And that's why I wrote my first book, Hooked, which was all about how to build habit-forming products. Because what I did, the book was published in 2014, so I had a few years to learn from companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. I wanted to learn from them and then democratize these techniques so that everyone out there could build products that build healthy habits in people's lives. And that's exactly what the book has done. So over the past you know, five, six years now, the book has made a, a, an impact in every conceivable industry from fitness apps using the hooked model to get people hooked to exercise the way FitBod does. It's a case study that I put in the second edition of the book. Companies like uh, Kahoot, the world's largest educational software, they just went public. They actually found the company using the hooked model to get kids hooked onto this educational product. I was an investor in Anchor FM, a product that is in your space around the audio space. This was a product that used the hook model beautifully. They gave me a call. They told me their hook model. I said, it's amazing. I want to invest. <laughs> Let me put money into it. And they just sold to Spotify for a reported over, well over $100 million exit to Spotify. And so the idea behind the first book is really, how can we get people hooked to healthy habits? But given that I've spent over a decade studying the psychology of how to build habits, I also know the Achilles heel of these very engaging, sometimes habit-forming products. And so we can use the same information in reverse. We can use it to help us break the bad habits that don't serve us. And that's what Indistractable is all about. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that. And I think, uh, like you said, it's not just for businesses. I think people, a lot of people have an issue with overeating and uh, especially during this time when everyone's at home. <laughs> so it's good when we can kind of go all through this. And yeah, you had said in your book that 40% of what we do is out of habit. So what does this mean? How are habits actually triggered? Yeah, so habits are an adaptive trait of our species. Many species have habits. Habits are defined as these impulses to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. And it's about half of what you do every single day is prompted by these impulses to do a behavior out of little or no conscious thought, purely out of habit. And so the idea behind habit-forming products is what if we could use those same habits for good? So that it's not just the social media companies and the gaming companies that are able to change our behavior. We can use these same exact uh, habit-forming techniques, the deeper psychology, to help us build good habits in our life. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to have you on this show is because I had found an article that someone had guest posted on your website using the hooked model for Amazon Alexa. And so we are in the voice technology space on this show today. And yeah. it got a lot of feedback. And when I said we were going to have you on the show, some people were like, oh, I love him. I've used his oh. model for my voice technology product and it's working. And so again, I want to congratulate you on that. That's music to my ears. Yes. I really appreciate that. That's why I wrote the book is, is to help people building products out there, right? It shouldn't be the gaming companies and, and uh, the big tech companies that use these techniques. All of us should use these techniques for good reasons, right? For, yes. To help people change their lives with healthy habits. It's so exciting. And so for those that are, they've heard of it or they're kind of like, okay, well, how do I use this? Again, because it's a voice tech space uh, in this show, I'd love for you to kind of take us through 
the hooked model system. But if you're able to not only describe the kind of four pieces, but also how it could work for voice technology, maybe give an example, whether you know one or kind of a made up example, so that people could kind of understand how they could use it in a great way for their own thing. Sure. Yeah. So I take your pick. If there's a habit forming technology that we want to tackle, is there something in particular that you're like, oh, I wonder what makes this and that so habit forming? Is there something off the top of your head? Well, I think, you know, from the voice technology space as a whole, the challenge is it's like more and more people are having smart speakers in their home. More and more people want to be using it. Consumer adoption has increased, but there's still a lot of frustration for consumers where maybe it's not working as well. It's not answering their questions or people use it one time. And so it's this idea of how do we get people to understand how to use voice technology more as a habit in a good way, in a way that helps them be more efficient in this day and age, germ-free, how can businesses use it? And so it's always that question of how do I get people aware of the skill that I have, but that they'll keep using it every day and again, in an ethical, great way. Right. You know, so let's do this. Why don't we break down, a, I think, a, a very successful habit-forming product. And then we're going to look at uh, where I think there's some deficiencies when it comes to the voice interface, when it comes to the skills on the Alexa. So the article that you read broke down what makes the Amazon Alexa product so habit-forming. And I think as a device itself, it perfectly displays the hook model. And that's what this article was written about. Somebody took the hook model and wanted to do a teardown of, wait, what makes Amazon Alexa so habit-forming? And and how does it fit into this model? And it certainly does. And then we're going to look at some of the skills on Alexa and why I think some of those are not very habit-forming. But I will say before we dive in, it's clear to me that Forming habits as someone who's creating a product in or out of the voice space is increasingly important today because what we've seen over the past decade is that the interface has shrank. It's shrunk down. So we went from desktop. Remember when we all had big old desktop computers on our work? And then that went to laptops. And so the screen got smaller. And then it went to mobile interfaces. So now the screen got even smaller. And now it's on wearable devices, right? So now the screen is even smaller. And now the interface has even disappeared altogether, right? So now these are the interface, right? The earbuds in our ears or the Amazon Alexa, there is no screen anymore. And so the opportunity to trigger people with what we call external triggers, right? The things on the screen, the, the buy now, click here, do this, do that, the external triggers. There's just less real estate to trigger people with those external triggers. And so that what that means is we have to trigger people with internal triggers. That if people don't remember to use your app, right? If your app isn't on the home screen, they're going to forget it's there. If your skill, if your Amazon Alexa skill isn't top of mind, if it's not a habit, people don't use it. And so it's more than ever important for us to create these habits because there are fewer opportunities to trigger people with these external triggers, right? There just isn't a screen is disappearing. That computing is becoming so ubiquitous that there isn't the interface to have a flashing ping or ding telling you what to do anymore. It has to be prompted out of habit. So let's do a, we can do a little case study here in the audio space from how we went from terrestrial radio and why that was a habit to what we're experiencing now with podcasts. And I think this explains why podcasting suddenly took off. And I think there's a critical juncture where that happened that's explained by the hook model. So if if you think about what made terrestrial radio so habit-forming, it was really the invention of having the radio in your car, right? That's what took it from an activity that people used to do only in the confines of their home. Now they could listen to the radio orders of magnitude more time in their day could be spent listening to radio because they were stuck in traffic. And so what's the hook model in this case? Well, the internal trigger 
is the fact that you're feeling bored, right? You're stuck in traffic. Think about this in the days well before the cell phone, right? Think about this when you were a kid, right? So back then you're in the car, you're bored. There are no iPads. That hasn't been invented yet. There's no iPhones. There's no internet around. What do you do in the car? So the internal trigger is this uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. You're pretty much your only choice was to turn on the radio or maybe put in a cassette tape or something. So you, you turn on the radio. The action, the next step of the hook is called the action phase. And that's defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. How simple is it to turn on the radio? Well, just a turn of the dial, right? Just a push of a button. Very easy to do. Then comes the next phase of the hook, what we call the variable reward phase. The variable reward involves some element of mystery, some kind of uncertainty. And this comes from behaviorism, where the psychologist B.F. Skinner discovered that when a reward is given on an intermittent schedule of reinforcement, when there's some mystery, some variability involved, this gets us to engage more right? So it's why you don't want to know how a book ends until you get there. There's suspense. Watching a sports match, right? You don't want someone to tell you who wins. You want to watch it because you're anticipating what's going to happen next, right? You're not sure. It's what makes gambling fun, right? When you pull a slot machine or when you're at a a blackjack table, there's uncertainty around what might happen next. It's what makes scrolling Facebook interesting. It's that scrolling and scrolling and not sure what the next video or gif or comment might be all about variability. So in the audio space, there's variability in the content, right? Think about the rise of shock jocks, right? Why did Rush Limbaugh get his become so famous and Howard Stern and all these people? Because they were interesting. They were different. They were exciting. They were variable, right? And so that explains a lot of what makes entertainment entertaining is the uncertainty. Think about the news. The first three letters of news are N-E-W. What's new? Nobody wants to hear yesterday's news. They want to hear today's news because it's uncertain. So that's the variable reward phase. And so all sorts of products that keep us hooked always have this element of variability. It's not good enough to just give people what they came for. There also has this element of uncertainty. And then finally comes what we call the investment phase. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to make it better with use. So with terrestrial radio, it was if you took the time to set that station on your dial, right? So that, okay, that's my favorite station. That's number one. My second favorite station is number two. If you took the time to set in your car radio, that station, that's a form of investment. It makes the product better with use because now listening to radio, if somebody on station one is, you know, it's a song you don't like, or they're talking something you're not interested in, they're they're playing an ad, you can switch to number two. Okay. So you've invested in it. Now that's how we form the habit of terrestrial radio. And for a long time, we had podcasts, right? Podcasts came about, that was an early invention of the internet, people broadcasting, just them talking or you know, having a various opinion. And then something changed. What changed is that suddenly it became easier to listen to a podcast in your car than to listen to the radio. And that's when everything changed. Because remember, we had iPods for a long time. And even before the iPhone, there were iPods and people put podcasts. That's why we call them iPad uh, podcasts because of the iPod. People would listen to them. But while you're driving, it was hard because you couldn't listen to a podcast with somebody else because you'd have you know, something in your ear that you had to listen to. And it was kind of clunky. And so, okay, I'll just keep listening to the radio while I'm in my car. It's also unsafe to you know, block your ears. You can't hear what's going on around you. But then suddenly, it became really easy to listen to podcasts in your car. So what happened to that hook model that we described earlier? Well, the internal trigger is still there. You still feel boredom, 
okay? But now you have a new external trigger of every time there's a new podcast episode, you get a ping or ding on your phone that says, hey, new episode, come check it out, right? So whether you're using iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you're using, something is telling you, come check out that new episode. Okay. Then the next step, the action phase. Now suddenly it's easier. Now we have cars. You know, it, when I don't own a car anymore, but when I used to own a car, as soon as I'd get in the car, it would automatically start playing from my phone. It was even easier than hitting the button on, to turn on the radio. Right. So that made it easier to go through the hook. Then the variable reward phase. Okay. When we used to listen to terrestrial radio, compare terrestrial radio to podcasts. Well, podcast, you know, there's nothing boring. There's so much great stuff on podcasts because you can customize it to your preferences, which takes us to the investment phase. And this is really, along with the action phase, this is really what changed everything when it came to voice technology and why it replaced largely terrestrial radio is because you can invest in voice in a way that you can't invest in terrestrial radio because you can customize the experience in a way you never could before. You can subscribe to certain podcasts. You can you know, fast forward, you can delete, you can change. You can, it gets better the more you use it, right? Let alone the content. The content is so good these days, right? There's so many amazing podcasts out there that are specifically tuned to your preferences if you want a, you know, a murder mystery or if you want politics, whatever you want. So the investment phase is orders of magnitude better than just setting the radio station. And so that's yeah. really where the, this old habit was replaced by this new habit because the hook model was so much better. And think about what this does next, right? Once you set those preferences of here's the type of podcasts I like, here's the episode I can't stop listening, or here's the series I can't stop listening to, that loads the next trigger. Because you set those preferences in, in the investment phase, it loads the external trigger to bring you through the hook once again. That's a really good example of the hook model in action. Now, let's wait. I promised you that I'd get back to the Alexa and skills. I think part of the reason that skills haven't fulfilled, I think, the promise that they could is for a few reasons. Number one, discovery is super hard. You know this, everybody's heard this. So, find like getting people onto using these uh, skills, and some of them are really amazing, is really hard. But also, for most skills, the investment phase isn't there. So, you invest in the Alexa by specifying skills, but the skills themselves don't get better with use. If I was a skill designer, that would be the number one thing I'd work on, is how can I make a skill that takes in feedback and makes it better the more the customer use it, uses it? What preferences, what data, what content can the user enter into that skill to improve it with use? The second thing I do is to figure out how to prompt people with external triggers. The, one of the problems with Alexa skills today is that it relies 100% on internal triggers. You need to go through the hook cycle a few times in order to associate the external triggers and the internal triggers together. You need to get those pings and dings a few times in order to no longer need them, right? So think about how you got hooked to Facebook, for example. At first, it was like, oh, I got a notification that my friend posted something, okay? But then eventually, you start to associate Facebook not with the pings and the dings, but with a feeling, right? I'm feeling bored. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling anxious. Let me just check Facebook for a minute because it relieves that sensation. With Amazon skills on the Alexa, there are no external triggers, there's nothing that reminds you, hey, welcome home, Nier. Would you like to hear the news? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's 100% habits. 
It goes straight to the internal triggers. And there's no external trigger to habituate the user to remind them, oh, this is the time you'd want to call upon that skill. And I think that's why for the vast majority of skills that the customer can't remember off the bat, like play music or set a timer, even though they're great, the consumer doesn't remember to use them. Wow. <laughs> I think that's a, an incredible breakdown of your model and how it works within this space. Do you have a recommendation for what an external trigger could be for voice at this point? Well, it's tough to say because you know the skills that you can build are so varied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can do anything. There's so many skills out there and many of them are great. They really don't deserve the kind of attention they deserve. This is only partially in the skill maker's control. Really, it's about Amazon. And I have no doubt that Amazon realizes this. I have no doubt in my mind that there will be a future version of Alexa that is proactive, right? That reaches out to you and says, would you like a so-and-so? Or isn't this a great time for whatever skill? You know, the idea here as a product designer, if you're building one of these skills or any habit-forming product, what you want to do is to closely couple the external trigger with the internal trigger. The closer together you can prompt a user with a ping, a ding, a notification, an alarm, something that prompts them to action with some kind of external prompting, the closer you can prompt them to, the, to when they feel the internal trigger when they feel whatever discomfort they're looking to escape, the closer you can bring those two together, the more likely you are to form the habit. So if I was a product designer, I would look for when is my product most valuable, okay? Many times happens, not just in voice, but in all sorts of tech products, we just bombard people with emails and notifications and pings and dings and rings on our schedule, and we don't consider the user's schedule. So we have to ask ourselves, when would the user feel the psychological itch that I am scratching for them? And that's when we need to send that notification. That's the point in time when we remind them. So you know what I would do, actually? If I was building an Alexa skill, and Alexa today doesn't have the opportunity to proactively reach out to people yet. I don't think they do. Maybe I'm wrong. They don't, right? Is there such a thing? Not that I know of. I mean, there are certain things you could probably set up, but nothing that's natural to my knowledge. Yeah. So you know what I would probably do is maybe find a way to integrate some method for reaching out to people with an external trigger. Like, for example, what if you, if there was some kind of symbiotic relationship between an external trigger on your phone and the skill on your Alexa, perhaps? You know, that's something you could have control over. You could send someone notification. Maybe there's some kind of paired user experience that reminds people, and you don't have to do this forever, right? A habit-forming product eventually doesn't need external triggers. Eventually, it's 100% internal triggers. Right now, most people who check Facebook, they don't check Facebook when they get a notification. They check it when they feel a feeling. Mm-hmm. The same goes with the Alexa, right? You don't have a prompting to say set a timer or play music. You play music when you're like, nah, I'm kind of bored. I wouldn't mind listening to a song or this evening would be better if I had a, some music playing in the background or I need to put in this cake. How do I set a timer? Where's the timer? Oh, okay, Alexa, do it. So eventually, you don't need an external trigger. But to train people, the first few cycles through the hook, you need that external trigger. You know, the other thing you were saying is people love that kind of element of surprise. But where does consistency fall in? You know, when we're talking about podcasting or voice, for podcasting, it's like, okay, you should post every Monday, Wednesday, Friday and keep that consistent so people know. Is that taking away from the surprise or how does that fit into it? So, okay, the kind of surprise that you want has to be in the customer's control. It has to be surprise, but with agency. So when we feel out of control, it doesn't feel good. Let me give you an example. If you're on a roller coaster, it's fun. 
if you go to a haunted house, right, on Halloween, if you go to one of those fun houses that you walk into, it's fun because fundamentally you're in control, right? You can leave the haunted house. You can get off the roller coaster if it's too scary and you don't have to ride it in the first place. So we submit to variability as long as we're in control. Nobody actually wants to be in a roller coaster that's really out of control. <laughs> that's no fun. Or imagine if um, you know suddenly we were giving this interview and all of a sudden it blanked out. Well, that's variable. That's a surprise, but that's no good. That's no fun because we'd be out of control in that situation. The variability is what am I going to say next? What insights might the listener glean? Or you know, what crazy thing am I going to do next? That's what keeps people engaged is the variability. So it has to be under their control. It's not so much about um, the consistency necessarily as long as the user knows what it is or is not in their control. And so some element of consistency is very important if that's what the user demands. But not every product is the kind of thing that people would use every day, right? I work with a lot of products in the healthcare space to get people to do what's called patient adherence. People who say they themselves want to take their medication, but they keep forgetting. And so if we don't get them into the habit of taking their medication or using a medical device, they could die. And so it's very important they get into the habit, but not every time is the habit a daily habit. In fact, if it's a daily habit, it's much easier to form. The harder habits are the ones where there's more time elapsed. So the benefit of consistency is that the more frequently a behavior occurs, the more likely it is to turn into a habit. And so the, the cutoff seems to be a week's time or less. That if your behavior, the key habit doesn't occur within a week's time or less, very difficult to get people into a habit. And so that's why you would want to create more consistency is that there's more frequency associated with the behavior. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard this before. Like you said, this book came out almost seven years ago now. And, um, you know, I think the, the concern people always have when somebody puts a book out about psychology is well, what if people use this as a manipulation technique or what if they use it in an unethical way? How do you make sure that people are doing this in a good ethical way and not doing it to manipulate people? Yeah. So part of it is that sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That <laughs> we want to get these techniques out there into the world so that one, we realize that we are being manipulated at times. And that's a big part of what Indistractable goes into is how do we break those bad habits? We can't do that unless we understand what's going on. And second, we need to get these things out there so that we can use them for good right? There's that saying that nothing is a superpower unless it can be used both for good and evil. And so certainly there are certain products that can get people to do things they didn't want to do. And that is what we call coercion. So manipulation has two extremes. There's either persuasion or coercion. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. Persuasion is getting people to do things they do want to do. So there's no risk of harming people when the habit we're trying to create is take your medicine that you yourself keep forgetting to take, but really want to take. There's no risk in harming people if the product is an education product or SaaS software or you know many, many different habits that people want to do that. They themselves say, I'm, I wish I could do this habit. I wish I could exercise. I wish I could eat more healthily. I wish I could take my education classes more seriously. I wish I could stop procrastinating. These are great habits that we can help people form because these are behaviors people want to do. When it comes to the other side, the unethical side is the coercive behaviors. The nice thing is, is that we don't need to worry about this as much as people like. <laughs> people like to worry about this because it lets them write off these techniques. I'm not really sure, actually. I think maybe it provides them an excuse with saying, you know, I can't stop. You know, we hear this sometimes these days. It drives me crazy. Technology is addicting everybody. It's hijacking your brain. It's, you know, melting your brain into mush. 
It's such stupidity. And the reason people say this stuff is because when we call something an addiction, well, that's lost off responsibility because now there's a pusher, right? An addiction always has a, a dealer doing it to me. But when we call it what it really is, it's not for the vast majority of people, it's not an addiction, it's a distraction. But distraction, oh, now I gotta do something about it. That's no fun, right? Now I have to take responsibility. That sucks. <laughs> it's so much more fun to blame Google or Facebook for doing it to me. So that's one reason. I think from the designer front, sometimes people say, oh, okay, well, it's manipulative, it's coercive, I don't know about that, because then they can just keep doing what they've always been doing. Let's just do what the competition's doing, because that's safe. And so they don't have to try these techniques and, and implement them, which re it requires work. I'll admit, you have to learn the techniques. You have to make sure you apply them. You have to make sure you test them and verify that they work. But the real test when it comes to how do we apply these things ethically, and I, I wrote about it you know, six years ago in Hooked. I wrote a whole section on the morality of manipulation. So this is not a new concern. I absolutely, from day one, uh, wanted to make sure that people use these techniques ethically. The key difference between persuasion and coercion is one word. And that one word is regret. That people aren't stupid. People are pretty darn smart, right? The vast majority of people, you sell them a product that they don't like, something that they regret using, and guess what? They're not going to keep using your product, right? If you buy an apple from a grocery store and the apple's rotten, okay, sucks, okay, you know, silly store, I'm not going to buy it from there again. But if you buy it a second time, you're definitely never going back. Not only that, you're going to tell all your friends, don't shop there, their produce sucks. And so it's the same way when it comes to the products we use. If a product is hurting us, if we don't like it, if it's not doing us good, not only do people stop using it, they tell all their friends to stop using that product as well. And so people have this natural breaker switch built into their brains that we're not quite as manipulatable as maybe people think on first blush. That's very well said. I like that because I think deep down, we all know if we're not doing something from a good place. So your new book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, how did this come about? Was this like a follow-up to Hooked or... Was it something completely different? Why did you choose to write this book? Yeah, so for me, this book, I wrote it for the same reason that I wrote uh, Hooked, was I was looking for the manual for how to do this. I had this problem in my life. I felt like I was getting distracted by things, and I didn't know why. I would sit down with my daughter and have some quality time, and yet I found myself checking my phone when I was with somebody I love very much. I was going to exercise. I would say I was going to eat right. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. I would sit down at my desk and say, okay, I'm definitely going to get to work. I'm going to stop procrastinating. I'm going to work on that hard thing that I've been putting off. And I'd find myself delaying for you know, 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour doing something I didn't intend to do. And so I wanted to get down to the core of why this was happening. And I kept hearing this sentiment that technology was at fault, that if we were doing this, we're getting distracted because of technology. And so I thought, gee, you know, maybe that's right. Maybe that's the case. And so I read books about this and I didn't intend to write a book at first. First, I just wanted to fix the problem for myself. And so I tried these techniques and I got rid of the technology. I did what many of these books told me. I went on a digital detox. I got rid of my smartphone and I bought a flip phone from like 1990 style. And I, I got myself a, a word processor that doesn't have an internet connection. And I figured, okay, you know, the experts say, you know, digital detoxes and the digital products are the problem. And I still got distracted. I would look at my bookshelf and say, oh, you know, I've been meaning to read that book. Let me just check that out for a quick sec. I just want to do some research in that book. Or let me just clean up my desk real quick. Or let me just take out the trash. I kept getting distracted. And you know why? For the same reason I kept overeating, that I wasn't getting to the root cause of why I was doing things I didn't want to do. 
And this is why these, you know, 30-day digital detoxes are so stupid. For the same <laughs> reason a 30-day diet is stupid. Right? Why do we do a, a diet for 30 days? It's, oh, I'm gonna lose 30 pounds, I'm gonna get in great shape. And what happens on day 31? You know what happens on day we, we make up for lost mm-hmm. time. That's what I did every time I did one of these silly 30-day fad diets. And the same thing goes with our technology. So the whole idea of, you know, cut it out of your life, one, it's super elitist. It's nobody but professors who don't have social media accounts that tell you stop using email and social media because the rest of us would get fired. Right? <laughs> it's like saying, stop eating food if you want to lose weight. Well, thanks, stupid. That's not very <laughs> So saying stop using technology is dumb these days. It's our lifeblood. I mean, especially, goodness sake, you know, going through this corona crisis, can you imagine if we had been hit with this corona crisis 20 years ago? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Reading the paper every day, waiting for it to come, yeah. (laughs) What would we do, right? Thank goodness we have these tools to keep us connected. I mean, look, we're talking now over thousands of miles of distance because of this amazing technology. And so we don't have to think that we have to vilify technology in order to put it in its place. And so what I believe is this philosophy of we can get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us by knowing how to be indistractable, by realizing the problem is much deeper than our tech tools. In fact, one of the things that really surprised me when I first started doing my research, you know, I went all the way to the beginning. I wanted to understand, you know, when did distraction start? 2008 with the iPhone? Maybe the year 2001 with the internet, you know, boom. Was it 1990? Turns out Plato was talking about distraction 2,500 years ago. He was complaining about how distracting the world was back then. He called it in the Greek, akrasia the tendency that we had to do things against our better interests. And so this is not a new problem. And the, the cause of the problem, I learned, goes much, much deeper than just whatever distraction is in our hands. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people, before I kind of was looking at your work, I also thought that the opposite of distraction was focus. But you say that the opposite isn't focus, it's traction. So right. what does that mean? And then where does the idea of focus actually have a space within all of this? Yeah, so this is a really critical point to understand that the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the origin of the word distraction, distraction and traction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll also notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I, when that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent, things that help you live out your values and be the kind of person you want to be, those are acts of traction. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not what you are doing with intent and is taking you away from being the kind of person you want to be. And so the reason that this dichotomy is so important is that it helps us realize two things. Number one, anything can be a distraction. How many times have you gone to your desk and said, okay, now I'm going to stay focused. I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm not going to let myself get distracted. I'm going to work on that big project. Here I go. I'm going to get started right away. I'm going to definitely do it. But first, let me check email. Or let me do that quick thing on my to-do list just to get some momentum going. Or let me just scroll through my Slack channels to get updated and see what's going on in the office, right? And this is the most pernicious form of distraction because If you say you're going to start working and now you're checking Facebook or Candy Crush or whatever, that's pretty obvious that you're slacking off, right? We know it, that we're not doing what we said we would do. That's pretty obvious. But the more pernicious form of distraction is the kind that tricks us 
into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important because we don't even know what's happening. We're saying, oh, email, that's a working type task. I got to do that sometime today, right? Well, if that's not what you plan to do with your time, it is just as much of a distraction as playing a video game. So that's point number one. Point number two is that just like anything can be a distraction, anything can be traction. That it doesn't behoove us to vilify these technologies because look, if you want to scroll Facebook or play a video game or relax and watch Netflix, do it, right? There's nothing wrong with these technologies, but do it on your schedule, not the tech company's schedule. Do it with intent. And that's how we turn distraction into traction is by deciding when we will interact with these tools, when they serve us as opposed to us serving them. So that's the really important dichotomy between traction and distraction. Yeah, and I like in a talk that you gave, you talked about that because so many people kind of judge others and say, well, I'm on Facebook for work. And so that's not distraction. Oh, but you are just playing video games. And so there's kind of like, you're the one that has the problem. But I like that you're saying, no, that's not what the issue is here. So because there's all kinds of distractions, right? Whether it's (laughs) too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, anything can be traction or distraction. There's nothing wrong with any of this stuff, right? Is alcohol potentially addictive? Yeah, very. But is there anything wrong with having a glass of wine with dinner? No, it's great. I don't want to go back to prohibition, (laughs) right? As long as we use it on our schedule and according to our values, not because we are looking for emotional escape. So that's when these things become a problem, right? Whether it's too much food, too much booze, too much news. When we are turning to these things for psychological escape from discomfort, now that's where it starts to lead towards distraction rather than traction. You know, everything you're saying makes sense. So how do we put this into practice? Because especially during a time when we're in lockdown, so you can't go out as much. You know, your food example is a perfect example, I think, for a lot of people. Email is another great one where, I mean, I've had conversations with myself. I'm like, okay, (laughs) we don't need to be doing this right now. Like focus on this, which you just said, focus is not the right thing. And then sometimes it gets better and sometimes you kind of get back into those old habits. So what are some suggestions of how we can really get into attraction mode. So the, here's where we have the four strategies to become indistractable. So step number one is about mastering the internal triggers. That we have to understand that everything we do, we talked about those internal triggers when it came earlier to building habit-forming products. Well, this is the Achilles heel of how we break the bad habits in our life is that we have to recognize that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do, everything you do is about a desire to escape discomfort. Even the desire to feel pleasurable sensations is itself psychologically destabilizing. Wanting, craving, desire, lusting, all of these things make us feel bad in order to give us the opportunity to feel good. And so once we understand that fact that everything is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, that therefore means that time management is pain management. Time management is pain management. Listen, I've read virtually every book on time management and productivity, and I will tell you, none of the techniques work. None of them, even the techniques that I'm about to describe to you, none of them work if you first and foremost don't understand this principle that time management is pain management, and if we don't figure out what psychological itch we are looking to escape from, none of it's gonna work. So that has to be the first place to start. You need tools at your disposal that you can use when you feel fearful, lonesome, uncertain, fatigued, anxious, stressed, 
what do you do? Do you look for escape by checking the news or checking Facebook or playing a video game or turning on Netflix or whatever, or taking a drink? Or do you harness that discomfort to propel you as rocket fuel towards traction rather than distraction? Because we have to remember, feeling bad is not bad. We get told in the self-help community all the time that if you're not happy all the time, that if you're not contented, if if things aren't awesome, something's wrong with you. And nothing could be further from the truth. Discomfort is our default state, okay? The human species has evolved to constantly feel perturbed. That is how we are built or evolved (laughs) is with this sense of something's missing. Why? Because that's what propels us forward. If everything's perfect all the time, why work? Why improve? Why build medicines? Why overturn despots? Why reach for the moon? You need discomfort to prod you to to action. But the question is, which type of action? Is it traction, something that you said you were going to do, something that moves you closer to your values and the person you want to become, or distraction, which simply provides psychological escape? So that's a big portion of the book. And the first step to becoming indistractable are learning these tools to help you deal with emotional discomfort in a healthier way. And this is something anybody can do. So there's several tactics in the book that are very concrete that anyone can use right away to master these internal triggers. So that's step one. Step number two is make time for traction. Because here's the thing. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So this is what used to happen to me. You know, I used to keep a to-do list because that's what the productivity books tell you to do. It's kind of gospel. Well, of course, if you want to be productive, you have to keep a to-do list. And let me tell you, well, let me ask you, I'm going to run, do you keep a to-do list by chance? I'm a very organized person. And for me, like I find devoting time, like, okay, at this hour I'm doing this, like it allows me to be more productive. Wait, are you, do you allot the time? Depends. Like, you know, for obviously we have a time for this set, right? For yeah. certain things I will, because as you were saying, I felt I was getting distracted by, oh, email, oh, Slack, all these different yeah. things where I decided like, okay, like this is the next focus. Yes. Traction, okay, so and I'm not going to do you're, anything else. You're jumping ahead. You're, okay. you're, you're, you're <laughs> well, right I, I just did this recently because I, okay. I felt it. So yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But let me, you know, when I ask people who keep a to-do list because they read in some book, this is how you get things done. They keep a to-do list. And you ask them, when was the last time you didn't finish everything on your to-do list? You know what they say? Always. (laughs) Today, the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that. They never finish everything on their to-do list. Why do we keep doing it? It's not working, (laughs) right? And yet we think it's this gospel of, oh, the solution to productivity is keeping a to-do list because somebody read a book one time that said that. And I'm here to tell you that to-do lists are destroying your productivity. Here's why. There are two reasons. Number one, I call this the tyranny of the to-do list. When you have a to-do list and you don't finish everything on that to-do list, that even your leisure time is spoiled, right? You don't finish everything on your to-do list because you put 100 things on there and you didn't get them all done. So you come home and all you want to do is just play with your kids, right? All you want to do is watch a movie on Netflix and just relax. But in the back of your head is this tickle of, oh, I didn't finish everything I needed to do. Let me just check email real quick. Or let me just work on that big project real quick. Or let me just do that one thing I still need to wrap up. And you can't even enjoy the leisure time that you deserve. That's horrible, right? The gift I want to give the world, I mean this with all intents. I want to give people the feeling that almost nobody out there has experienced of sitting down on the couch 
And playing with their kids or having a conversation with their spouse or watching Netflix without guilt. That is the feeling I want everyone to have. And you can only do that if you throw away the to-do list and keep instead a time box calendar. The second reason, by the way, that to-do lists are harmful is we know that behavior change is identity change and vice versa. So what identity is a to-do list reinforcing? It's reinforcing, if you're the kind of person like I used to be that had this to-do list and I never finished everything on the to-do list, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, I was reinforcing the identity to myself that I didn't finish what I said I would finish every day. And that over time, looking at the to-do list and saying, oh, I still didn't finish what I said I was going to do, loser, takes a toll. And you start believing that it's okay to not do what you said you're going to do. And now you've lost. Okay, now the war is lost because you've accepted the fact that you're just not gonna do what you say you're going to do. It's over. Instead, what I recommend instead is to do what we call time boxing. And this isn't a technique I made up. It's been around for decades. It works. It's been validated in hundreds of peer-reviewed studies. What we do with the time box calendar is we set time in our day to live out our values. No matter what your values are, it's not up to me or anybody else to tell you what your values should be. If your values include playing video games or watching Netflix or whatever it is you want to do, great. But plan the time. Put that time in your schedule to do the fun stuff as well as the worky stuff because that's the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. And the goal of a time box calendar is not to finish anything. What? what why does that make any sense? How am I going to finish anything if I don't make that the goal? Here's why. The goal of a time box calendar is one thing, to work on whatever it is you said you're going to work on for as long as you said you would without distraction. That is your only metric of success, whether it's for 15 minutes, half an hour, two hours, doesn't matter. Did you do the thing you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would without distraction? And here's the kicker. The people who do that get more done, they actually finish more than the people who keep the to-do list. And so that's why this is such an important step. Making time for traction is the second step to becoming indistractable. The third step is about hacking back external triggers, you know, the pings, the dings, the rings, whether it's from our colleagues, whether it's on Slack or email or meetings, our kids, all of these external triggers that can lead us towards distraction. How do we hack back all those external triggers so they stop distracting us? And then finally, the fourth step is about preventing distraction with pacts. And this is about how we can make what's called a pre-commitment to make sure that as a last resort, we have this firewall to keep us on track so that we don't get distracted. So those are the four big steps. Master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, and prevent distraction with pacts. Yeah, I love that. And I am excited that I feel like I'm doing, starting to do a lot of those things. Because you're right, it makes a difference when you dedicate time and sometimes you set boundaries. And then I agree, I feel less guilt because before, and a lot of people feel this way, especially in the US, you feel like you're not doing enough. You need to do more. People want something from you every second. And that makes you feel like guilty and anxious and like, I'm never keeping up. But when you're doing what you're saying, you start to feel, I don't know, I feel more productive. I feel better. I feel like more in control of what's going on. You get to breathe. Yes. (laughs) You get get to allow yourself to relax without guilt. And that's just as important. It's not just about being super productive all the time. It's about being intentional about how you spend your time. We can't make time. The goal should not be to make time. No human being makes time. 
What we have to do is to decide in advance how we spend that time. And there's a reason we call it paying attention, right? We pay attention. It has value. And yet so many of us, we just, ah, whatever, we just throw it away, right? Like we're throwing away money. Whoever wants to take it. Oh my God, what a Donald Trump tweet. Oh my gosh, here's my attention. <laughs> uh, what's that thing that happened on the news? Here's my attention. Somebody calls me, here's my attention. Just take it, take it, take it. As opposed to deciding in advance, how do we want to spend our time? And there's nothing wrong with engaging in any of these things as long as it's done with intent. Yes. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I love all of this. You're such a wealth of knowledge and information as always. Where can people learn more about you, purchase your books, and really talk about anything that we've discussed today? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So my blog is at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. And uh, the book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And I just want to mention a, a special offer. If you get the book, if you get the audio book or the Kindle edition or the hardcover from your local bookseller, from Amazon, doesn't matter where you get it, make sure you keep your order number from the receipt if you go to indistractable.com, that's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, so indistractable.com, if you enter in that order number from your receipt, no matter where you buy it, you'll get access to all kinds of resources. There's an 80-page workbook as well as a free video course. It's complimentary, all at indistractable.com. So make sure you check that out as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nia, for your time, for all the work you're doing, and also for your passion and energy and the way you deliver your message. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. This is really fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Inside Voice podcast. We greatly appreciate you being a part of our community. And if you enjoyed this episode or you like the podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe, follow, like, share, leave a review of the show. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, people you want to see on the show, things you want to learn, feel free to send us an email at kerry at modev.com. That's K-E-R-I at M-O-D-E-V.com. And be sure to check us out online at voicesummit.ai. Thank you. And we look forward to chatting with you next week. Mm-hmm.